I grew up just a few houses down uh, from my maternal grandparents. And so we grew up in Western Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh, and was very close to them. As a result, I, I had a paper route uh, that my, my grandfather, I called him Pap Klein, helped me with. And so he would pick up the papers at the local Dairy Mart like a half an hour early while I was at school. And then he would come meet me as I got out of school. And we'd do like 50, I'd do 50%, he'd do 50%, but you know I got 100% of the money. So he was so, so kind, so gracious. And in 1993, he suddenly got very sick one weekend. Temperature running really, really high, vomiting uncontrollably. We were like at a loss of what, what, what was going on. We took him into the hospital, and it turned out that he had a staph infection that had settled in his lower leg and his ankle, and he was growing septic, and they had to do emergency surgery to get in there to remove the necrotic tissue to scrape the infection off the bone, and then it kind of had to heal in an open way for, for several weeks, and he was so frustrated. He was a farmer at heart. Uh, he, he ended up working in a steel mill and, and still farmed like three large gardens in his backyard, and so he couldn't do any of that, and he was laid up on his front porch, and I remember just going and, and sitting with him as he soaked his his lower leg in this kind of tide solution. It was weird. They used a tide detergent uh, periodic several times a day and, and, and allowed his, his leg to soak and to heal and to protect it from infection going forward. He was miserable yet thankful. Miserable because he was laid up for a summer when he would otherwise be working in his garden, but thankful for the skillful hands of a surgeon who was able to cut out the necrotic tissue so that he could live and not spread into the rest of his body. It was painful, but a redemptive summer. As we continue our sermon series this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus operating skillfully with his words like a surgeon cutting away diseased tissue. He gets to the heart of the problem, the heart of the matter, which in fact is the human heart. He pulls no punches with his words. He speaks to the profoundly personal areas of our lives, what we long after, our desires. He speaks to relationships and conflict and purity, the deep, deep, tender, sensitive areas of our lives. Jesus speaks to directly with grace and truth. And yes, as we sit under and read his words and hear them preached, it's painful, but friends, it is also redemptive because he's doing good work in us through it. Jesus, the skillful surgeon, his words operate on our hearts and they promote our growth and his glory. See, that's his goal through his word, to promote our growth and his glory. So let's open our Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount. We're continuing our series in this uh, wonderful, masterful sermon that Jesus preaches. We began last week. This series is entitled The Ways of the King because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus unveils the character and the qualities of his kingdom, what it looks like to live under his kingship, his reign. So we're going to talk about the ways of the king. You can find that on page 809. Page 809. If you need a Bible, we love to give free Bibles away. There are some um, in the entryway, the, the book close, bookshelf closest to 
the restroom, you can grab one of those Bibles and give one to a friend if they need it. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 9 by way of review. Perhaps you weren't with us last Sunday when we started this series. Uh, We did the first three Beatitudes. Uh, We're going to do the next four this morning, but I'm going to read it from the beginning just as a way to review and remind one another. Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. We mentioned this last week. That word Beatitudes simply means blessing or blessedness, the state of blessedness. And so the idea here is that these kingdom qualities listed out in the Beatitudes place one in a state of blessedness before the king, walking in his ways, these ways, fulfilling his character, these qualities, leads to a state of blessedness. Blessed are those who enter the kingdom of Jesus and walk in his ways as his subjects. There's no higher blessing than the blessing from God. Acceptance from God, approval from God. There's no higher, no greater blessing than the blessing of God. And that's what we see in these Beatitudes. We talked about the kingdom of God, or as Matthew describes it, or names it, the kingdom of heaven. As a devout Jew, hesitant to use the name of God, so he calls it the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous phrases. What is the kingdom of God? If these are the qualities of the kingdom, we probably should know what the kingdom of God is. Again, I'm going to review this because it will provide color and context for the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God is not a spatial geopolitical reality. It's a dynamic kind of influx reality where God's people are, his kingdom is. It's where people are living under his right rule, honoring his ways and his will, living out his character in the qualities that he desires, conformity, alignment to his will. That is the kingdom of God, where his salvation is extended to sinners, those sinners become his subjects, and those subjects walk in his ways. That's the kingdom of God, where he extends salvation to his subjects, and they walk in his ways. That is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is already, and it's not yet. There's some tension here. Jesus, when he came, lived, died and rose again. He started, he inaugurated his kingdom, yet he's going to fully consummate or establish his kingdom when he comes again. And so we are in this in-between period of being inaugurated, 
but not yet fully consummated. And this is a strategic time because we have the opportunity to invite people to become his kingdom subjects by trusting in him and turning from their sin. It's a glorious time, a glorious time where you can invite people to enter the gates of his kingdom through faith and repentance. Our approach to studying the Beatitudes is to break them down into digestible portions. And so last Sunday, we we covered the first three Beatitudes. This Sunday, we'll cover the next four. And then next Sunday, we'll, we'll cover the final Beatitude, which is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then it extends a little bit beyond that, unpacking what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we'll, we'll spend our whole sermon, our whole time together next week on that one. But we're going to cover four this morning, four Beatitudes. I should also mention why the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. It's a distillation a summary, a synopsis of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount covers five chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Again, it's the qualities of the kingdom, the ways of the king. The Beatitudes are just a few verses, seven verses at the start, that is like the abstract on a full paper that is about to unfold. It just summarizes what you're about to have. It's a distillation of the ways of the king in very pithy, provocative statements. And so that's, that's what we, it's, it's an abstract or the Cliff's Notes version of the whole Sermon on the Mount. What I'd like to do is just briefly review the first three Beatitudes. Maybe you weren't here last week, just want to briefly review these and then we'll move on to the next four. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this not being economic poverty, financial poverty, but rather poverty of spirit, an understanding of one's spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God, an understanding of one's need before a holy God. It is an I need God statement. That's what it means to be poor of spirit. I am desperate for God. And unless he moves and works in me, I cannot approach him and have relationship with him as king. And be in his kingdom. It's strategic that this is the first one because it's the gateway into the kingdom. It's the entry point. I need God. It's the most genuine, truest form of repentance. I need God. I am on a wayward path. I am nothing and have nothing. But God is everything and has everything. And I'm going to him for his grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit who understand their spiritual bankruptcy. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have entry into the kingdom of heaven. Second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning, grief, godly grief, is the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. This is a kind of grief over personal sin and corporate sin. A lament over your wicked heart and lamenting over the wickedness of the world we live in. That's what this means to mourn. It is a godly grief over sin and rebellion and brokenness in this world, personally and corporately. Yet Jesus says those who mourn will be, in fact, comforted. Comforted personally because Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus is a kind and merciful Savior, and he gives forgiveness to those who have wronged him. And that is all of us. 
He is a savior. That's what his name Jesus means. He saves. We're comforted corporately because God, in fact, is working in this world. As broken as it is, God hears our prayers. He delights to answer the prayers of his people in his timing. But he's working. We can be comforted in this life as we pray and seek him to work in the mess, to work in the brokenness. And we're comforted by the future because Christ is coming to fully consummate, to fully establish his kingdom. Sin will be eradicated. Every tear will be wiped away. That is a great comfort. What will come then is a comfort to us now to stay the course and to persevere. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second beatitude. The third beatitude that we covered last Sunday. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not spinelessness. Meekness is a controlled desire to see another blessed before yourself. It's self-denying. You can take a back seat so that someone else can be elevated. That is meekness. If poverty of spirit relates to relationship with God, meekness primarily relates to relationship with other people. In your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your classroom. Not grabbing and pulling ahead of people or stepping on people. Meekness is self-denying and it defers to others so that they might be built up, elevated. And the reward of meekness, notice, is that we shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? We shall inherit the earth now and then. So there's a, there's a temporal blessing to this. There's contentment in this life when we realize that we are in Christ and we have everything in him. Christ is the great king. The earth is his and everything in it. And by faith, we have union with him. So in fact, we have true treasure. We have everything in Christ. You don't have to bite and scratch and crawl and grab in this life because you, you actually have everything in Christ in this life. You have everything that you need for life and godliness in him. And in the future, there's coming a new heavens and a new earth, and it all is going to be ours, shared with us by Christ. This is the, the grounds of true contentment in life, knowing that you have your true treasure in Christ here and now, and it's going to be even better then when he establishes the new heaven, the new earth that's not corrupted by sin and selfishness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Our aim for today is the next four Beatitudes. We see these in verses 6 through 9. This is our subject at hand, the next four Beatitudes. And here, Jesus is pressing on profoundly personal areas of our life. He's pressing for the point of redemption on profoundly personal areas of our lives. Four key areas. Our longings, our compassion our purity, and our conflicts. These are the areas that he covers with these next four. Our longings, our compassion towards others, our purity, and our conflicts. And again, his goal is our growth and his glory. Our growth and his glory. 
Let's consider the fourth beatitude. We find it in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is speaking about what we're going after, what we desire, our longings. It's a deep, intense longing here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who cannot live without righteousness. It's as important as food and drink are to the body. That's what he's saying. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is as important spiritually as food and drink are physically. What is he inviting us to go after, to pant after as the deer panteth for the water? Righteousness. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Friends, it's, it's what is right and good what is upright in the eyes of God. It's a key characteristic of God. One who seeks what is right, what is righteous, in fact, seeks God because God is righteous. This is a pattern of life lived in alignment with God's will, with his word, with his ways. You hunger for conformity to his word and his will. Your heart pounds for him and his ways. That's what this is all about. We're not distracted by sin, by the allure of greed, by the allure of the ways of the world, the values of the world. Not derailed by trivial, meaningless matters in view of eternity. I was just convicted of this as I, as I just did inventory this week. What do I do with my downtime? It's a good thing to rest, to give your mind a pause. But as I started kind of tallying my time, when I have a few moments to rest, how do I occupy that time? I could spend hours on YouTube watching sports highlights. I love sports. I love to play them. I love to watch them. I love to watch the reruns after I watch them already. And in view of eternity, like... That is so trivial and meaningless in life. Like, and I just had to pause. It's okay. I don't want to be a legalist here. But as you start sort of tallying your time and your priorities, what are you spending it on? And what does it reveal about what you're going after and where you find satisfaction? I'm frittering time, precious time away. Some diagnostic questions as we think about what we desire. What do you focus your energy and ambition on in life? What makes you tick and run? What are you running after in this life? What do you think will satisfy you? Friends, only one pursuit will satisfy the deep longing in your heart. There's only one thing. One reality that will truly satisfy you is to seek the righteousness of God. To seek God. And scripture promises that when we seek him and his righteousness, we will find him. Jeremiah 29 verse 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And it's a promise. Seek God. He's not elusive. He's not shifty. He wants you to desire him. He, in fact, wants you 
to seek him, and when you seek him, you will find him. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I have come. Why? That you might have life and life to the full. That sounds a whole lot like satisfaction to me. Jesus has come, not that he could just kind of fill us halfway. No, he has come so that we might have life and life to the full. That is soul satisfaction. Seek him. He came to satisfy you. All the other things that you're going to run after are not going to satisfy you. He will. When you seek him, you will find him. When you seek him with all your heart. Four tender areas of our lives. Our longings, number two, our compassion. Our compassion, the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To spin on Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17, a person who is kind benefits themselves. A person who is kind, who is compassionate, in fact, benefits themselves. That kindness, that compassion in God's economy will be revisited to them. Now, we have to be very careful with legalism here and contingency theology. And by that I mean if we think the only way to obtain mercy from God is by showing mercy to others. There is some truth to that, that as we extend mercy, we will also receive mercy. We see it in the Lord's Prayer later on in Matthew chapter 6. But it is not the grounds of us receiving mercy. Mercy comes from the good pleasure and the kindness of God before we've ever extended it to anybody else. God's mercy is not contingent to our own. His mercy is the wellspring, the source of our mercy. Our mercy to others is derived from God's mercy to us. We see this later on in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'll paraphrase this briefly with you. Perhaps you've heard of the parable of the unforgiving servant. There was a servant who owed 10,000 talents. I mean, we're talking millions and millions of dollars in today's economy. And his master forgives him of that massive debt. The forgiven servant goes free. And the first thing that he does is what? He shakes down some servant of his because of a very minor debt, a few denarius, the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks, shakes him down. The one who received much mercy gives no mercy. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect here. And as a result, he's then thrown into prison by the master who forgave him of that $10,000 $10, debt. Notice that the master originally forgave that master before he ever did anything else. He forgave because it was in his good pleasure to forgive. Thereafter, though, his inability to, to give mercy and compassion and forgiveness to the people in his life, he's held accountable to that. But the initial mercy giving came from the good master who forgave this massive debt and having been forgiven, yes, he's, he's accountable to extend it to others, and he didn't. 
So in, in a way, that's sort of a, an illustration of what we see here in the Sermon on the Mount. God forgives us a mountain of debt when we look to him. He forgives all of our sins. And then he calls us to go and do likewise, to extend mercy to others who are in need, to extend forgiveness to others who are in need as a way to reflect his character. And yes, we are accountable to how we, to how we do that. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. People who've been given mercy are called to dole out mercy, to give it freely. Mercy is embedded in God's character. God's wonderful self-declaration, we see it in Exodus chapter 34, and it's repeated throughout the Old Testament, is this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's the way God reveals himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock. And Moses just sees the back of God. God just gives him a little glimpse. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. That's the first thing he says about himself after his, his name, his title. The Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful. It's embedded in his character to give mercy. We see that same truth about him repeated in Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 145, Joel chapter 2, Jonah chapter 2. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is merciful. It's such good news, friends. He forgives your sin, your rebellion, your disinterest, your apathy. He forgives you. He extends mercy. Mercy is being compassionate to those in need to those who are in a wretched state, extending compassion and helpfulness to them. Some diagnostic questions. Am I merciful? How do I respond to people in need, whatever that need is? When I come down Route 2, headed east into Cambridge, and I see the perfect panhandling spots, many people, men and women there, asking for money. What is your gut reaction to those people? What is it? I'm sure they did something to get themselves in that predicament. That may or may not be true. Are you moved to mercy? I'm not saying you have to give cash. It could be likely very unwise, but what is your heart posture to people in a wretched state? Is it cynicism and negativity? Blame? Or is it compassion? Is your heart moved and hurting for these people? Am I gentle or hard-nosed toward people in need? Am I patient with people in need? Or am I rushed and impatient? Friends, the ones who are not merciful are unaware of their own state because before a holy God, we are all wretched and stand in great need and he gives us his great mercy over and over and over again. One who is merciful understands their state before God and how merciful he's been. Our longings, our compassion, thirdly, our purity, the sixth beatitude, our purity, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the heart, the epicenter of a person's personality. 
kind of the emotional seat of human beings. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now Jesus, later on in Matthew, is going to indict the human heart. It is, in fact, a cesspool of sin, is what he says, Matthew chapter 15, verses 19, verse 19 and following. But what Jesus is doing here is inviting us to closely examine the inner workings of our hearts, to take close inventory of what's inside there, to look at the cesspool, and to consider it need, its need of cleansing. Some diagnostic questions. What do I think about when I have nothing at all to think about? When you have a few moments just to unwind, where does your mind gravitate? What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? How do I respond to vulgarity, coarse joking, gossip? Do I laugh and join in? Is my conscience wounded and concerned? How do I use my time when no one is watching? These are matters of the heart, purity of heart. The reward for pursuing purity is that we shall see God. We shall have fellowship with God. We shall see him face to face as he is. Purity of heart, friends, is indispensable to fellowship with God. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who's going to get close to him in his presence? This is temple language in the Psalms. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to an idol. Purity of heart is indispensable to fellowship with God, drawing near to him. The reality is we cannot purify ourselves. This is the danger of the Sermon on the Mount. The danger of the Beatitudes is simply behavior modification. I am going to pick myself up from my spiritual bootstraps and muscle these character virtues. No, they come through that spiritual poverty that we talked about that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount begin with. I am desperate for God. I cannot purify my own heart. Jesus does it. Graciously promises to do it himself. John 15, verse 3, he says to his disciples, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What is the agency of cleansing in our lives? It's the very word of the king, the word of God. Read, studied, trusted, and obeyed. It brings cleansing to our lives, purity to our lives. Ephesians 5, 26, husbands, wash your wives in the water of God's word. And I'm going to indict myself right now. One of the hardest things to do in my own marriage is to open up the Bible at 9.30 at night after the circus has, the, 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 the kids have gone to bed, which is really hard to get them all three down. But at 9.30 at night, to open up my Bible and to continue to read the Gospel of Mark to Laura. I'm still in Mark chapter 2 after months. It's just one of the hardest things. It's what our enemy and our flesh, they don't want that to happen. Why? Because it's the agent of cleansing. Laura needs me, her husband, and the leader in our home to read the word so that she could be washed in the water of God's word. God's word promotes purity in God's people. Regularly read it, take it in, live your life in submission to it. Husbands, wash your wives in the water of God's word. 
Wives, you need to read it as well, but there's a, there's a role that a husband and a leader plays of washing in his home. Reading, studying, trusting, obeying God and his word promotes the purity of God's people. Our longings, our compassion, our purity, fourthly and finally, our conflicts. Heavy, heavy. A call to peacemaking, the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now there's a broad and there's a narrow sense here of peacemaking. Broad in all the relationships that we have, family, work, neighborhood, that's pretty broad. There's also a narrow, narrow application of peacemaking, and that is being a proclaimer of peace, a sharer of the gospel, an evangelist, which every Christian is called to do. We'll talk about that in a moment. That's more narrow application. Let's talk about the broad. How are you as an agent of peace in broken relationships all around you? Let's be honest, they are all around us. You don't have to look far in your family, in your workplace, in your church. Are you a peacemaker or are you a pot stirrer? My mother used to call me a pot stirrer. What did she mean by that? I was an instigator, fueling the fire of conflict in the house. I knew how to push people's buttons. Are you a peacemaker or a pot stirrer? Don't fuel that fire. Extinguish it. Extinguish it. How do you extinguish fires? How do you promote peace in places of conflict, start with prayer. Pray. This is your spiritual issues. You gotta fight spiritual problems with spiritual power. Pray, pray, pray. Exercise patience. No, it's not gonna happen quickly. Time, time is your friend in relational conflict. Most often, time is your friend. Prayer, patience, hope. Hope in what Christ can do. I meet with folks in premarital counseling, marriage counseling, regular counseling, and oftentimes people are given to hopelessness that they can't change, that their partner can't change, that their friend or coworker can't. Hope, trust in what God can do. If he can reconcile the most broken of all relationships, that is the man-God relationship, he certainly has the resources to heal any horizontal relationship between people and people on that plane. Hope in what he can do. Use words wisely, respectfully, volume low, calm. Guard your heart from anger. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Don't fuel the fire by getting angry yourself. Believe the best about people. You're mediating conflict, you're having conflict. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Trust in what God can do. Am I a peacemaker or am I a pot stirrer? Now a more narrow definition, evangelism. Any Christian is called to be an evangelist, to share the gospel regularly with people, to hold out the good news of Jesus to people in their path. A Christian who shares the gospel is a messenger of peace, is a peacemaker. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful the feet of the one who brings good news, who publishes, who proclaims peace. That's what a gospel sharer is. You're bringing good news to people that you love because Christ can forgive them and restore them and change them and they can have peace with him. How does Christ give us peace in relationship with him? He makes peace with us by the blood of his cross. He's a substitute on the cross 
bears all of our punishment, all of our sin. He makes peace between people and God because he died as a substitutionary sacrifice, absorbing God's wrath, paying our debt. And he invites us, having received that peace, to share it with others through evangelism. My grandfather, Pat Klein, was a master gardener. Master gardener. He taught me a lot of things. He used to have these tomato plants that, that would grow as big as a, a Cabbage Patch doll's head. Like big red tomatoes. You'd slice them, you put them on toast with a little bit of salt and pepper, and that's all you would need. Amazing gardener. And he taught me the importance of pruning. He said, Dane, when you, you see this tomato plant, people make the error of letting them just grow wherever they want. You have to prune them. You have to pluck off the suckers. And by suckers, he meant you have a central stem, and then you have vertical branches that go off. And what happens at the 90 degree? You have these little suckers that grow off, and then you got to pluck those off because your tomato plants will get sucked by those, and they'll be small. you got to prune them, pluck off the excess, pull the suckers off because it sucks the nutrients. And then on those branches that go out with no suckers, they're big tomatoes. Pruning. But the Bible says pruning is painful, but the pruning is necessary. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes to start it off, but thereafter, through the rest of his sermon, is to prune the lives of his people by pressing on the areas of unrighteousness, the areas of sin in our lives. John 15, 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that, do, that bears fruit, he prunes so that it might bear much fruit. All of us go through seasons of pruning that are painful, that are difficult, that we'd rather not go through. But rest assured, the master gardener is working, pressing on some of your pain points, pruning you that you might bear much fruit, which is his goal in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to tender issues, very personal issues, and there's going to be many of them throughout the rest of the sermon. The master gardener is pruning you that you might bear much fruit, which is for his glory. Praise him for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy to us. We were hopeless and lost. You drew near to us in Christ, gave us great mercy. You made peace with us through the blood of your cross. God, would you shape our lives? Would you empower us to be people of your kingdom, people who walk in your ways, people who are ready to invite others to become kingdom subjects of you? It's a marvelous reality that you invite us flawed people to be your agents in this world, inviting others to consider you and your kingship. Help us to do that faithfully. Encourage us. Give us mercy and grace in Jesus' name. Amen.